Hello, and welcome to Playing in the Sandbox, Conversations in Pedagogy. This is a podcast about play in higher education. And of course, when I talk about play, I don't necessarily mean playing a board game or coloring or building something, although it could include all of those activities. What I'm talking about is that element of curiosity, that thing that pushes us to ask, huh, I wonder what would happen if, and then explore from there. Play can happen in a number of ways. And in this podcast, I argue that play is what separates good professors from great professors. This is episode three, Turning Group Work into Teamwork, part two. In episode two, which is when we began to look at turning group work into teamwork, I started with this very unsurprising revelation that students quite simply, passionately, hate group work. But what I find really interesting, and the reason I wanted to look at group work from this framework of play is that most of us enjoy playing with others. So where is that disconnect? What is that disconnect between how we think about group play and how we structure it and how we think about and structure group work? So I proposed these five P's, planning, which is that we need to build project dimensions into the course meaningfully, thoughtfully, and intentionally. Patronage, this idea that it's our responsibility as faculty to offer really powerful and regular guidance, support, and feedback. And then players, that we need to think about developing groups with just as much attention to who is in the group as we do to want the group will be doing. In this episode, we're going to look at the other two P's in this five P's, and that's practice and purpose. Practice. Hey, do you know how to get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, man. Practice. People will tell you that practice makes perfect. Other people will tell you that practice just makes permanent. I'm not sure either of those is entirely accurate, but I think that they both get at what is the truth, and that is practice is just incredibly important. Perhaps one of the best examples for considering the value of practice, particularly as it applies to groups, is to think of team sports. Imagine if a pro sports team were to announce that they were going to switch up their training style so that they were going to only do individually based activities until the season started. And then only after they started playing games that count toward their season would they try to figure out group dynamics I don't think anyone would be surprised by the undoubtedly disastrous results of such a decision. And yet, I would argue that we often do something very similar to that disastrous plan when we are developing group work in our courses. Often, the only opportunities in a class that students have to practice group work, and and by practice I mean both developing basic, how do you work with other skills, as well as the more advanced, how do I work specifically with this group of others skills, right? That the only opportunity students have to practice group work is either with these super low stakes activities, like just brief five minute in class discussions, like think, pair, share, or with the, this is the legit season, the stakes are high, actual group work. I think it's really important to separate in this case the idea of experience from practice 
students have experience with group work, but I'm talking about practice in a very deliberate or purposeful way. And this is an idea that Anders Ericsson and Robert Poole explore in their book, Peak, Secrets from the New Science of Expertise. And they've crafted this term purposeful practice to refer to something that's not blind or automatic repetition, but rather intentional. And so they say purposeful practice has well-defined specific goals and it's very focused. And they came up with this term after watching and observing experts in various fields and realizing that these experts had at minimum about 10,000 hours of this purposeful practice under their belts before they were able to illustrate the level of mastery that we would expect from them. This 10,000 hours, of course, is not a fixed and hard rule. Rather, Erickson and Poole discovered in their interviews that when people had achieved levels of mastery, they had put in on average a minimum of 10,000 hours of purposeful practice. So to break that down, if you were to engage in purposeful practice of something for eight hours a day, every day, it would take you almost three and a half years to achieve 10,000 hours. And of course, the reality is, is that most of us are not engaged in practice for one activity exclusively in a purposeful way for eight hours a day. So it could take considerably more time than that to achieve that 10,000 hour minimum. So we're not just talking about practice. We're not even just talking about purposeful practice. We're talking about a significant amount of purposeful practice. But I would argue that the payoff is incredibly high. A theorist named Mahai Csikszentmihalyi interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people from athletes to artists to scientists to determine what motivated them to produce ideas and to produce work that satisfied their creativity and curiosity. And he found that time and again, these people spoke of enjoying the often, and this is a quote, painful, risky, difficult activities that stretched their capacity and involved an element of novelty and discovery. So he wondered, Csikszentmihalyi wondered, well, what would make people enjoy something that is described as painful, risky, and difficult? And he discovered in listening to how people describe their experiences that each person was engaging in this optimal experience known as a state of flow. And flow is that moment where your challenge level is high, but your skill level is also high. If the challenge is too hard and the skill level is low, you might experience something like frustration or anxiety. If the challenge level is too low and the skill set's too high, that's apathy, right? So flow is that sort of optimal state where you're producing some of your best work. And it's this really intriguing state of being characterized by a number of things. So Csikszentmihalyi said that flow is when there are clear goals every step of the way, there's immediate feedback to one's actions, there's a balance between challenges and skills, action and awareness are merged, distractions are excluded from consciousness, there is no worry of failure, self-consciousness disappears, the sense of time becomes distorted, and the activity becomes autotelic. A good example, I think, for many of us would be reading. When we realize that time has passed and we didn't realize it, we maybe didn't realize we'd been turning pages for the last several hours, 
we aren't worried about it being too challenging because what we're reading is at the same level in terms of challenge as is our skill set, right? Or it could be something like when you are playing a sport and you've practiced and practiced and practiced and you're no longer having to think about which foot do you lead with, you know, how do you kick the ball so that it goes to your teammate rather than your opponent, right? You're sort of, again, in that state of flow. This is what I think we want from our students when they're engaged in group work. We want them to be in this state where the challenge is high, but the skill sets that they're bringing to the table are also high. But the only way to do that, the only way for our students to achieve flow is to engage in purposeful practice and as much as possible. What's interesting to me about play and practice is that there's this awareness that almost everything we do is the culmination of lots of different skills that have allowed us to achieve a successful play experience. We don't just think that, you know, oh, I only needed to know how to do this one thing and that's the only thing I did. We say, you know, I needed to know how to talk to my team. I needed to know how to work my controller. I needed to know how to be able to run my character. You know, we, we know that there's lots of different stages involved or steps or components involved in group play to be successful. But I think a lot of times, I know I've made the mistake of assuming that the only skill students need to have to be successful in a group is to be able to complete the final product, right? To be able to write a paper, to give a presentation. But in their book, How Learning Works, Susan Ambrose et al. says the following, the ability to facilitate productive and engaging discussions requires several subskills. The ability to pose appropriate questions, listen empathetically, maintain flow, respectfully correct misconceptions, manage time effectively, and many more. Putting all these skills together is the ultimate multitask. That is why we need to acquire fluency in each of them so that we develop enough automaticity to reduce the cognitive load that any one of them requires. So what Ambrose et al. are talking about there is that practice is key, but practice involves mastering each one of the components that goes into the big picture. So one of the things we need to teach students how to practice is engaging in autonomy and agency. In her piece in Inside Higher Ed, Carol Marchetti emphasizes the importance of allowing students opportunities to reflect on how it's working within the group. What are their dynamics? How can they improve? How might they optimize skills that they're bringing to the table? She also, and I think this is really interesting, encourages not just allowing, but actually requiring students to set expectations for their own behavior. And she writes, don't tell teams what type of behavior is expected. Let them decide for themselves. When teams establish their own ground rules, such as everyone must participate, and processes for conflict resolution, vote, flip a coin, etc., they address key components of successful teamwork, such as positive interdependence, individual accountability, and interpersonal skills. So what I'm suggesting is, is that one way to practice autonomy and agency might be to actually treat the entire class as a team, as well as having these smaller teams producing specific projects. And then to develop as a class expectations for behaviors in class. And that might mean, what does it look like in terms of electronic devices? How should we evaluate course participation? What do we do if someone is speaking too frequently or not frequently enough? 
And allowing them to practice that in the sort of safer space of the big classroom might allow them to think more cognitively about how they're going to practice that in their smaller teams. So what are some of the strategies for practice? Have as much group opportunities as possible. Have small group projects that are due throughout the semester, not just the final finished product. Have low stakes group work so that you're asking them in the classroom to engage in specific practices that you want them to employ, whether that be interpersonal communication or individual accountability. And, and this leads me to my next P, because what you have them practice depends in large part on what the purpose is for you and this group project as far as it concerns your course. Purpose. Not, of course, to be confused with porpoise. Sorry, that was really nerdy. It's incredibly important to think about the purpose of the group work. And one of the ways to do this is to think about what are the student learning outcomes? not just for the finished product, whether that be a presentation or a paper or a prototype, but what are these student learning outcomes? What are students supposed to be able to demonstrate and achieve and accomplish through the experience or process of the group work itself? As I mentioned at the end of episode two, there really does need to be more purpose in assigning group work than just to either reduce grading loads by having fewer finished products or because of this like just general students need experience working in groups. Of course, those can be part of the reason, right? We need to be crafty sometimes, and there's nothing wrong with that in figuring out how to assign assignments that are going to encourage and promote student learning, but that are not gonna overwhelm us with endless amounts of grading. Students do need experience working in groups because they will probably have to work with other humans in their life. But I would argue that we need to be very thoughtful in considering a little bit more the purpose behind the group work. Purpose is, of course, a huge part of play. We roll the dice because we need to progress across the board. We shoot a basket into a hoop because that is how our team earns points. And in play, we are very explicit and very transparent about the reason something is done or the reason something exists. In other words, we're just very explicit about what the purpose is. As I was thinking about possible purposes for group work, I thought about, okay, so what are some of the reasons why we might need or benefit from having a group working on something as opposed to an individual? And I came up with five different possible purposes. And so I'll kind of go through them all. And then I'll talk about how you could incorporate practice depending on which purpose you choose. So the first would be something like collective minds. And in this case, the project needs or benefits from blending multiple viewpoints. We need to hear from many different voices and we need them to be able to be incorporated into this amalgamation so that it's multi-layered and it's rich because of the fact that multiple viewpoints are sort of interwoven into each other. On the other hand, the sort of opposite approach or purpose would be contrasting minds. And in this case, the project needs or benefits from the juxtaposition or tensions of multiple viewpoints. So in this case, instead of everything being interwoven into this sort of mosaic that when you take a step back, you can see this, this singular picture. In the contrasting mind's purpose, you would be encouraging and promoting different viewpoints that are not going to align, that are not going to sync up, and you want the tension and then that sort of uncomfortableness to emerge because you have people tackling it from very different worldviews and perspectives. 
A third purpose might be the sort of mini hands idea. And in this case, the project needs or benefits from individuals who can actually work at the same time, in the same space, on the same thing. Right? So this would be like the production type of project where you literally need more than two hands in order to construct a set piece or to make a film, right? Like it's just not really possible to effectively do it with just one person. Or if you do it with just one person, it's a completely different experience, right? So you really want people together at the same time working in tandem. Another possible purpose would be what I'm calling the sort of big toolbox approach. And in this case, the project needs or benefits from different skill sets and expertise. And so people are approaching the same problem, but they're doing so with different abilities and skills. And this would be the idea that a hammer is a lovely tool, but it is not the only tool sometimes that you need. So you're sort of purposefully thinking about this person can do X, this person can do Y, which is good because this project requires X plus Y. And the final possible purpose that I thought of was the lots of roles idea. And in this case, the project needs or benefits from having individuals who are each tasked with different roles and functions that oversee either different stages or aspects of the project. So to go back to something I referenced in episode two, this would be having somebody whose job it is to be the naysayer or somebody whose job it is to bring research into the equation as it relates to, say, socioeconomic problems, right? So this would be that a project sometimes needs people who can have a very specific task that they can focus on exclusively and oversee how it applies to every other task or stage being completed. And the truth of the matter is, is that when you're thinking about purpose and you're thinking about the purpose of the group work, not just, again, that final product, Purpose is going to determine and shape every aspect of how you craft, assign, and discuss and grade this group work. It's going to determine how you craft the prompt and what you tell them that you're looking for to in terms of evaluation. It's going to determine how you craft the prompt in terms of calendar and how much time you give them and what groups you assign and how you function in terms of interacting with the groups. It's going to determine how you present the projects to the students because depending on the purpose will depend on how you explain what you want them to achieve, independent again of this final product. So how could you incorporate practice into these different purposes um, is something that you need to think about because again, depending on your purpose will depend on, on not necessarily how you practice, but what skills you're asking them to practice. So for example, going back to those sort of five possible purposes, for the collective minds, you're going to want to have them practice being able to agree with each other, being able to compromise, being able to craft a mosaic out of a whole bunch of different pieces of colored glass. And there are lots of ways that you can do that. You can have them do that by reading an article and having to discuss what they agreed with. You could have them do it by having to come up together with a summary, a shared summary with a partner about a lecture or a topic or a book that was read in a previous class or outside of class. There's lots of ways that you can practice it, but you're going to have them be practicing skills of listening and then using that listening to craft a, a single picture. 
for contrasting minds, it's going to be the opposite, right? You're going to have them practice careful listening and empathy skills because you're going to want to help them to figure out how to have disagreeing or opposing viewpoints still be in conversation with one another. And so in this case, it might be asking them to write a rebuttal to something that they've read or needing to listen to someone who has a different viewpoint than their own and then explain how that viewpoint is just as valid, even though it may not be the one that they maintain. For the many hands model, you're going to practice the art of assembling. And so this might actually mean that even if it's a class on, say, literature, that you have them engage in building some sort of physical prototype of something so that they can practice that I'm here, you're here, and we are doing this at the same time. And it's going to be practicing that art of give and take, right? So there's lots of little activities that you can do where people are having to go back and forth to build something up. For the big toolbox option, this is going to be, again, that's about different skill sets and expertise. So it's going to be about practicing sharing information. It's going to be about the actual skill of teaching, right, and communicating knowledge. And so there are lots of things that you could do, such as jigsaw groups, where somebody learns something about a topic and everyone in the group learns something about a different topic and then they come together as a group and they have to present it to each other. You could also engage in one of them having to instruct someone else in something basic like how to solve this problem or and they have to follow not what they know is done in order to follow and complete the problem but what the person is telling them they need to do. There's lots of ways that you can engage in practicing the art of, of teaching. And the final, that lots of roles purpose. This would be practice assuming different roles. So say today in this class period, you are the naysayer and your job is to come up with one valid reason why this theory doesn't work. Or your job is to think of an example that refutes the the rule as a general practice. Or it could be something like listening to perspectives. Okay, so we need to have someone be the leader How can you listen to that person? Your job is to follow what they say for the smallest assignment, and then we'll go from there. I saved purpose as my final of the five Ps, in part because it's the most important. It needs to be determined as one of the first things. So first, you're going to say, what is the purpose? What am I trying to achieve? What do I want my students to be able to achieve? And then you can work your way back and say, okay, well, let me plan out the stages. Let me determine my patronage, my support. Let me think now that I know that I want there to be tension amongst the group, how I'm going to craft my players together. And then you'll practice the skills and the steps that are related to that specific purpose. What is incredibly important, though, and what I think is pivotal for making students not immediately resist group work is that they need to understand and know this purpose. It needs to be explicit. Do students know why they are engaging in group work in your class? Do they know what they will be gaining from this experience of working in group work? In other words, do they know what they should be learning to do besides the finished product itself? The other way to make it so that students are less resistant to group work is to make the purpose authentic. Ken Bain in the book, What the Best College Teachers Do, says, and this is a quote, the best teaching creates a sense that everyone is working together, whether that means working on a problem silently while listening to the professor or reasoning aloud with other students and the professor. Moreover, the questions, issues, and problems are authentic. They seem important to students and are similar to those that professionals in the field might undertake. And when we're thinking about authenticity, 
one of the things maybe we should be thinking about is failure. At the end of episode two, I teased this idea that perhaps one of the most intriguing applications of group work could be in allowing the space for failure to happen and in the process to sort of normalize the process of failure and more importantly, the process of coming back and overcoming failure. I want to make it very clear that I am not advocating for creating a large semester long high stakes group project where at the end it's just impossible to do it. And then you were like, surprise, of course you failed. There was no other option, right? That would be incredibly demoralizing. And I'm not sure that would teach any lessons except for maybe like cruelty. But what I am advocating for is thinking about group work as a space where people can say, you know, I'm, I failed on this. Can you help me? Or we failed on this, but it's okay because we now have a way to do a better version. So what are some ways that you could use group work in order to create a culture where failure is a step? in the process rather than a sort of gut instinct end moment. I think the answer is to think about the type of group work that you can do in class and also the type of projects that can be done as smaller assignments outside of class so that they're not investing, you know, weeks or months into something that the whole point is to fail. So some group work that you could do in class would be things like the spaghetti marshmallow challenge, which I have provided information about on the website. That is a great way to create a real space for failure because by definition, only one group will have the tallest tower. And there's some interesting materials out there about how children often do better on this challenge than actual architects in building something. And so you can kind of see that, you know, this Self-censoring becomes one way that failure can happen. Not listening to the other members of your group becomes another way. Not having prototypes becomes a third. And so you are allowing them within a group to see, well, why did you not work? Was it because you weren't communicating? Was it because you weren't trusting each other? And that becomes a way that they can take that lesson and take that practice and apply it to a bigger group project. You could also do something where you give each student only two or three of the stages of a or steps of a process and ask them to complete it on their own. And then when they fail because they don't have the other steps, they don't have the other stages, then put them into a group with people who had those other stages or steps, right? So if person one has stage one and three, and person two has stage two and four, put them together, and now they can actually complete the process. And that would allow them to realize that some things cannot be done on an individual basis, that sometimes a collective really is more effective. In other words, allow space and opportunities through practice and through smaller little group activities, allow them to fail, fail in communicating effectively, fail in going to each other for help instead of just trying to do it all themselves and then use those moments to help them with the big group projects that you're wanting them to work on where failure is a stage but not the end goal. Thank you so much for joining me for this continued discussion of group work. I think that it has the power to be truly transformational and so I'd be more than happy to talk to anyone who's thinking about incorporating or tweaking how they use group work in their courses, either in a big stakes or low stakes sort of way. 
If you're looking for more on group work, Linda C. Hodges has a really brief little paper called 10 Research-Based Steps for Effective Group Work, and she has some excellent sources that she incorporates in there. You can see that on the selected bibliography for this episode. But I want to end with this reminder that group work has great potential. It can fail, and it can fail really hard. I had an example of that this last semester. I had one group that was just toxic, and they struggled the entire time to produce something that they could feel proud of. But even then there, I had some people say that they really appreciated certain aspects of the project. And so I think that's what we have to cling to, is this idea that just as most of us enjoy playing together, whether that's just spending the day with someone or engaging in more formal gameplay, it is possible to create group work that is maybe not fun, but certainly meaningful, thoughtful, and authentic. And students will respond positively to that when they know that the group work that they're being asked to do has been carefully and thoughtfully crafted. I hope that you will join me for episode four, The Case for Curiosity, in which I'm going to return back to what I think is the most basic principle of play, and that is the idea of curiosity. And specifically, I want to look at how we as faculty can encourage and foster it in our students so that they will be curious and through that curiosity, they will become, I think, better critical thinkers and better practitioners of the skills that we're trying to teach them. Mm -hmm.